0: January 2010, my hands were nervously shaking as I dialed the number of a man named Don Polachak on my Boost Mobile phone. It was about a $50 a month phone back then. Didn't have the iPhone yet. So I called Don and I asked him, hey, I'd like to grab a steak. We should go to Outback, grab some dinner. I'll tell you what, Don, I'll buy and he agreed. I didn't even think he would agree. I was nervous because, I mean, this was the Donald. I call him the Donald. This was Mitzi's dad. This was my girlfriend's dad at the time. I was really nervous to meet him. He's, uh, he's just a guy that just commands respect. He's a no-nonsense type of guy. Um, so we get to back. we eat dinner. And I, for some reason, he ordered the most expensive Meal. I don't, I think he was trying to measure me up. It was like a $50 surfing turf or something like that, which was almost all of the money that I had. And so we, we talk for a while. We have a good time and we laugh and we, we just talk about all types of things. And after dinner, uh, I, I pop the question. I ask him why, I give him the question and I, I tell him why we were meeting. And I said, Don, I love your daughter very much. She's the love of my life. And I was wondering if it would be okay with you (laughs) if I asked her to marry me. And you know what he said? He laughed at me. He didn't say anything. (laughs) He just said nothing and laughed. And then he said, Jake, I like you. I think that you're a pretty good guy. I want my daughter to get married eventually, but here's the question, how are you going to take care of my daughter? Where is the money, Jake? Where's the money? Um, But I was ready for that question. I was prepared, and I reached into my back pocket, and I pulled out my handy-dandy budget that I had printed on a piece of paper, (laughs) crinkled up. I said, here you go, Don, I (laughs) I got this figured out. So he took the budget and he studied it, looked at it closely, handed it back to me, paused for a moment, and surprisingly told me yes. Funny thing about the budget, the money, we weren't making that money yet. It was money that I thought we would make in a few months. (laughs) He knew that too, but he was gracious. Don didn't have to bless our marriage. I mean, he was there when I wasn't. He was there for Mitzi's whole life. I mean, he he picked Mitzi up out of the crib when she was crying. He was there. I was nowhere. But he gave me something that day that was very precious to him. One of the most precious things in his life. He gave me her hand in marriage, and that was five years ago. Uh, me and Mitzi are now married. We have the rest of our lives to look forward to. We now have a son. Uh, that's four months old. And uh, Mitzi is, other than Christ, she is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Nothing else compares. Uh, but there is one thing that is greater. There is one gift that is better than even Mitzi, even my son. God gave me something precious. God gave me the gift of eternal life in Christ. And my goal this morning is that you would see that. Genuine faith in God. Genuine faith receives the, God's gift of eternal life, and so the truths we learned this morning—it's going to affect everybody. This passage that we're looking at—it has a way of speaking to passionate, genuine believers in Christ, and it also has a way of speaking to adamant non-believers, those who are apathetic, those who do not really care about the things of God. Nobody is left out here. And if you're here and, you, and, and you, if that's you, if you don't really know what's going on, I want you to see the faith that believers have. I want you to see the relationship that believers have with God. I want you to want it. I want you to long for it, to thirst for it. Our text is 1 John 5, 6 through 12. My sermon this morning is, is as you know, one part of a long series that we've been in since Jan- January going through 1 John. Most of you have been here for the whole thing. Some of you, this is new. 1 John 5, 6-12 is just a it's a small section of this letter. To understand this small section, you have to understand 1 John 5, 6-12 in light of the whole book to really get it. 1 John is a very interesting book. If you've been studying it uh, for this amount of time, you'll see that it's organized in kind of a weird way. It's not organized in a linear fashion. It's not written in a way that we Westerners really like our information handed to us. It's very different from, say, like the letters that the Apostle Paul writes. He's pretty easy to follow. That's because Paul organized his letters more in a linear fashion. It's almost like a syllabus that you would receive when you go to class. They're easier to outline. John's style, though, is very fluid. He writes in what's been described a circular way, meaning that he will hit a topic, he'll then move to something else, and then he'll come back around to that topic like a circle. And that's why it seems like John repeats himself a lot, because he says the same things later in the letter that he said previously in the letter. And for the last several weeks, we've been hearing close to the same thing, just phrased in different ways. What we've been hearing is this. We've been hearing that Christians are able to know and love God. A person who loves God will show his love for God and others by obeying God, by obeying God's commands that he has given to us in the Bible. So, so far, John has spoken at length about love and obedience. But now, that circle is turning. And John is now going to shift his focus to faith and belief. So he's hit on it a couple of times in this letter, faith and belief, but not really to this extent. Chapter 5 is where he devotes most of his time to faith and belief in Christ. Last week, Ben preached through the first five, five verses of chapter five, and among other things, we learned that genuine Christians are able to overcome the world because of their faith. Their faith is the key to their victory. Their faith is the key to their victory in persevering in Christ to the, to the day of their death. It's their faith. Why is their faith victorious? Their faith is victorious because of the object that it is placed in. Their faith is victorious because it is in Jesus Christ, God himself. In our text this morning, John is going to expand on this idea of what genuine faith is. And this is what genuine faith does. It receives Jesus. So my goal this morning is John's goal. My goal this morning is that you would see that genuine faith receives God's gift. And the gift is eternal life in Christ. And so my first point this morning is this. Embrace Jesus as God's son. Embrace Jesus as God's son. Let's let's look at the first part of verse 6 in chapter 5. John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. When I first read this, I was like, wow, this is a pretty difficult verse. (laughs) What does he mean by this? I mean, I haven't seen language like this all throughout John. And then all of a sudden, this is he who comes by water and blood. And as I'm studying, the first thing I thought, I'm thinking, okay, water and blood, I'm thinking, must mean this has to relate to First John four two, where Jesus had come in. Where John describes Jesus as coming in the flesh. Water and blood must be a, a way of symbolizing birth or something like that, where Jesus has come in the flesh. And I was just wondering, you know, is this another way of saying that? But after some invest investigation, uh, we see that every time Jesus affirms Jesus every time John affirms Jesus humanity, he he does it. He says that Jesus came in the flesh. So it's very unlikely that that's what water and blood mean. To say that Jesus came by water most likely refers to Jesus' water baptism by John the Baptist. And John actually records this baptism and tells us what its purpose is in the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, chapter 1, verses 29 through 33. If you turn with me there, we will... We'll read that. It'll also be on the screen. John says here in in 129, Gospel of John, the next day he saw, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Speaking of Jesus' Eternal existence there. I myself, this is important. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is God. This last part. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. So when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, there's a purpose to it. It is, it is God declaring him to be this, his Son. It is God declaring Jesus to be God in the flesh. And what happens is the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and this is the point where his earthly ministry begins. And it takes him to the end of his public ministry, which is what our next question is. What does it mean for Jesus to come by the blood? We've talked about the water. And so there's only one other reference in 1 John to Jesus' blood, and that's 1 John 1, 1.7. And it says this, First John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, if we Christians walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. This is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. This is something that Jesus did. Jesus is not this passive victim he actively went to the cross and laid his own life down in our place. John, 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This is the point John is making about Christ. He's, he's God's son who laid his life down as an atoning sacrifice. Who, whose sins did he atone for? The sins of believers let's read the next part verse of verse 6 John says and the spirit the holy spirit here is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth this is what Jesus said the holy spirit would do Jesus says in John 15:26 but when the helper comes whom i send to you from the father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, what's the Spirit going to do? He's gonna, he will bear witness about me. One of the chief roles of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus, not himself. One of the chief roles of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus, not himself. Let's continue through verse 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree. John is using language that would have been familiar to his readers. In the Old Testament and New Testament, both the, the most important issues were decided by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, the last part of it says, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So what is happening here is John is calling on three witnesses to affirm a truth that he is establishing. So you gotta think of the passage like this. You, you are in a high-profile court case. This is Law and Order SVU. Does anyone watch that show anymore? I, I didn't know that. That's cool. It's been going for like 37 years or something like that. Alright, Law and Order. You're in the courtroom. You are in the jury. You're part of the jury. John the apostle, he's the lawyer. And he's calling witnesses to the stand to testify that Jesus really is the Son of God and the only way to salvation. He calls on the water to the stand. Water, do you testify that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God? Yes, I do. He calls on the blood. Blood, is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. He calls on the spirit. Spirit, is, is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Each one of them is giving the same testimony from their own point of view. And all three of them are saying the same thing. They're not contradicting. They're all saying, yes, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. The gavel falls. Court is now dismissed. And so now, as a jury, you go into the jury room, and now you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision about Christ. In the words of C.S. Lewis, your choices as to who Jesus is are very limited, extremely limited. In light of what Jesus has said about himself, in light of what God has said about him, in light of what the water says, the blood, and the spirit have said about him. You've probably heard this illustration before, but Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He can only be one of the three. There are no other options. If he's a liar, then dismiss him. If he's a lunatic, then run away from him because he's crazy dismiss him. But if he is Lord, if he really is the God of the universe, if Jesus really is the son of God, the Messiah, then the only option is to either just rebel against him and die in your sin or repent of your sin, believe in him for salvation and worship him because as he is God, as he is the creator of the universe, he is worthy of Your worship. And so he's worthy of it. And our faith ought to compel us to embrace him for who he really is. The second point this morning is this. Trust what God has told you about Jesus. Trust it. Trust what God has told you about Jesus. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 of 1 John chapter 5. John says, if, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So for the most part, we, we trust what people tell us when somebody tells you something. For the most part, we take it as truth. For the most part, people are trustworthy. If you were to tell me something, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, unless we just, you're just a lunatic <laughs> and we just know that you're a liar. John here is arguing from the lesser to the greater here. John is saying that we should basically just, we should take God's word seriously. People are full full of error. They often lie. Even when they're not trying to lie, it's, you know, you could lie unintentionally. You could say things that are wrong. But God is light. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. The words that he tells us, they proceed from his character, which is pure light and truth. God's word is truth because he is truth. Genuine faith receives his testimony. Let's read on in verse 9, the second half of that. For this is the, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Here John is declaring God's authority for his teaching. He's the creator of the universe, declaring truth. About his son. What is the testimony? That's the next question. Well then what is the testimony? And I think the most likely answer. Is that he's referring back to verse 8. Where he's basically saying. My testimony concerning the son. Has been given through the spirit water. And blood. Just saying that again. He's reaffirming his testimony. Let's look at verse 10. Whoever. Believes. In the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Remember verse 6? The Spirit testifies that Jesus has come by water and blood. I think what we have here in this verse is more detail about how the Spirit is actually doing that. Because the Spirit is testifying The spirit is shouting out, but where is he doing that at is my question. And I think the answer is here. He's in himself. The spirit is saying, shouting out very loudly inside the believer's heart, inwardly, yes. He's saying, yes, it is right. It is good to believe in Jesus because Jesus really is the son of God. This is the correct thing to do. Paul describes this in greater detail in Romans chapter 8 verse 16 where he says Romans 8 16 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if you're a genuine believer here you know more about what this means. You just just know. You just love Christ. You don't always know why, but you just, you just know that Jesus is God. He died for my sin. That's the spirit within us pushing us towards Christ. We're able to call God Father and be assured that we are children of God. And that's a gift given to us by God. But there's also a, there's a flip side to this. Verse 10 continues, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Any person that does not believe God's testimony concerning Christ here is calling God a liar. Now, if you, that's terrifying I mean, if you do not believe what God has said, if you don't believe his words, if you don't take them as truth, well, the opposite of truth is a lie. You're calling God a liar. You're calling God who is light, darkness. I think there are a couple ways that you can do this. I mean, there's the obvious way. You can be very outspoken about it. Outright in your rejection of Christ. I think it's pretty easy to spot. But then I think there's an even more dangerous way of calling God a liar. And that's just being indifferent. That's just not taking God's word as God's word. It's just not taking God's word seriously. It's indifference. It's apathy. You're doing the same thing when you just don't care. You're outright provoking God to his face and saying, you're a liar. Just based on your response. John's very black and white here. In fact, he's very black and white through the whole book. I mean, there's no middle ground here. Either you believe in Christ and act on it, or you don't. I've lived most of my life. I'd say that I I, I lived in that apathetic, indifferent category. I I basically acknowledged that God existed, uh, that He wrote the Bible that he sent his son jesus to die for my sin i acknowledged those truths i had some idea of that mainly because i had just been raised to be around church frequently and i'd heard it over and over again and i was just it just kind of wired in me a little bit on paper i looked like a believer i acknowledged these truths externally but i was not a believer like John defines it. I was not a believer. I was not a genuine believer in Christ. My belief did not translate towards any form of change. I still loved the things that God hated. I still loved my sin. And I lived like it. It was very obvious. When I talked about God, there was no love. I didn't care about other people who said that they were Christians I had no attraction to other believers. I didn't care about being in a body of Christ because I didn't love Christ. That's why. But by God's grace, when I was 18, I found myself at a website where, of all people, Mike Seaver from Growing Pains was sharing the gospel. Kirk Cameron. uh, God can use anybody. Share the gospel. And... God moved me from the realm of unbelief into the realm of belief. God shined his light on the darkness of my heart. I saw that I was a sinner and I had only one place to run and that was to Christ. I knew that I needed him. All of a sudden the lights just started Flickering on, the lights in my heart just came on. I knew. I mean, I've known about Jesus my whole life, but not like this. Not like this. Now it was personal. Now it was real. I needed his righteousness because I didn't have any on my own. It was real. The truths came alive. Jesus died for me. That became real. And God saved me. And I didn't even know anything about him hardly, but I knew that I loved him. I just knew that I loved him. And over time, it translated into a changed life. I began having a genuine love for God's people, for others that wasn't there before. And it's not perfect, not perfect, but there is growth, there is progress. And so why should you trust Jesus? Why why should you trust Jesus? If you have no other answer, I think it simply comes down to the fact that God has told you that he is the son of God. I mean, this is not merely the testimony of man. This is the testimony of God. Above all else, this is the God of the universe giving us his word. This is not philosophy. This is not something that man thinks. Man did not come up with this. This is not human imagination. This is not a myth. Perhaps the greatest reason for believing in the message of the gospel is that God said it. It comes from God. And so we ought to take it deadly seriously. And so trust what God has told you about Jesus This brings us to our third and final point this morning. Enjoy, key word there: Enjoy the eternal life that you have in Christ. Let's look at verse 11 of 1 John chapter five, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. That God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. So God is saying here that he has given us, he has given genuine believers, he has given Christians eternal life. Just pause a second, just think, what, what does eternal life mean? What is eternal life? What is it? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is eternal life. So first and foremost, eternal life is Jesus' life. Eternal life is God's life. It is the life that God is living. Eternal life is something that God gives us as Christians, he gives it to us by by placing us into Christ. Christ is eternal life. The gift is that God the Father unites us with the Son and we live in Jesus' eternal life. That's the way John puts it. Does it defy comprehension? It defies my comprehension. It's something that We did not come into the world having. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, key word there is has, has eternal life, not will have eternal life in the future. No, eternal life is now, it starts now. When Christ becomes your Lord and Savior. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, eternal life is not something that we wait and to get after we die. It starts now when Christ, when you believe in Christ. It starts now. If, if you are a genuine believer, eternal life has begun. You're already in, in heaven, in a sense. It's an, you're already there, but not yet. You can begin enjoying Christ. Fellowship with God here on earth, now, if you're believing. Believing faith, faith and belief, is the link. It's the link in the chain that links us with the eternal life in Christ. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life like this. He's praying to the Father in heaven like he always does. And he says... And this is eternal life. He's going to define it very clearly here: that they know you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is a very experiential knowledge, of, obviously. Eternal life. This eternal life. It, it is a personal, intimate knowledge of God. It's an eternal study of God. It's an eternal friendship with God where you learn more and more about Him. It's not just avoiding death. It's friendship with God. And it is amazing. This past weekend, my family, we went on a vacation. And we went to one of my favorite places on earth. I haven't been to everywhere on earth, but out of the places that I've been, this is my favorite. (laughs) It's it's the point at Oak Island, the inlet between uh, Holden Beach and Oak Island, and it, it, it's kind of like a sound area. It's just a creek back there. It's very calm. It's a great place to take kids, and we just sit around and relax. It's a lot of fun. And this past time, me, and my dad, we had a kayak that was rated for like 200 pounds, and we both got on it, and so it was like 400 pounds on a 200-pound on kayak in the middle of the creek. That was a bad idea. We almost sunk. But, man, it was fun. Uh, but, you know, we're sitting there in our chairs, having a good time, sort of getting a tan. I don't, I don't really tan. Uh, but we had to leave. We had to pack up. We had to do the work of putting everything back in the cart, We had to go back home, and then we had to drive three hours back home. And it was temporary, the enjoyment. It was fleeting. I wish I could have stayed out there and just enjoyed that the whole time, but it was fleeting. All enjoyment in this life is is fleeting. It's temporary. I I think that God gives us that enjoyment as a picture of the enjoyment that we're going to experience in him forever. I mean, forever. Imagine the best possible thing that you can possibly enjoy. Multiply that by millions. Multiply it by an infinite amount and make that last forever. That's what eternal life is going to be with God. It's it's going to be amazing. I, I, I can only use words to describe it, but nothing can give it justice. Nothing can give it justice. Why is eternal life eternal Our life in Christ is eternal because Christ is eternal. I mean, just think about the eternality of Christ. I mean, it just defies comprehension. God is inexhaustible. Another another answer to why life is eternal is because it's going to take eternity to figure God out. There's so much amazement in him. There's so many truths that will just amaze us. That it will take all of eternity. It's not going to be boring. I mean, if you could say that there was a new day in heaven, every day would be different and amazing as we learn more and more about the Lord, our friend who loves us. I mean, this is the God who created the universe. So it's going to be forever amazing. And so, like we mentioned before, your eternal life started the day that you became a believer. How do you enjoy Him now? Very simple. You walk with Him. You live with Him. You learn from Him. You go to the one place that He has given us to learn about Him the Word of God, your Bibles. You spend time in it. You meditate on the truths that are there. I mean, it ought to amaze us the truths that are in Scripture. You talk with Him. You pray. We're told in Scripture to be constant in prayer. You you constantly be connected with him in prayer. If you're in Christ, your friendship is perfect. It's never going to end. It's already started, so to speak. It's only just started. So if you're a believer here this morning, you you can be encouraged. I mean, just look at the first part of verse 12 in 1 John chapter 5. He says this, Whoever has the Son has life. You have life in Christ and it is true that one day you're going to die. You're, you're going to physically die. Your body's going to give out. It's already started to give out. <laughs> but you're never going to truly die. You're going to live forever because Jesus lives forever and you're united with Him. And because of your faith in Christ, you have received that gift. And so the question this morning is that you? Is that you? Are you a believer? Are you united with Christ? Because if you're not, John has something to say too. Just look at the the second half of verse 12. Whoever does not have the Son of God, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That, That ought to make you tremble. It's very sad. If you're not in Christ, though you're living right now, You never truly will live. You never truly will live. And when you die, you will truly die. Instead of eternal life, you will experience eternal death. That is what happens for you if you're not in Christ. Your only hope is Christ. Put your faith in him. Plead with God to help you. Don't resist the grace. Don't resist the opportunity to respond to the gospel, to, to, to respond to his offer of life in him. You can enter into eternal life. And so my goal this morning was that you would see that it is, it is genuine faith, that it, does, it receives the life in Christ that is eternal. So the questions are, you know, is your faith genuine? Has it transformed who you are? Are you truly thankful for the eternal life that you have in Christ? Are you thankful for it? Do you thank God for it? Do you think about it? Do you meditate about it? Let God know that you're thankful. Pray to Him. Thank Him. Let God know how much you love Him. Think about how much He loves you. Because if you are in Him, He loves you so much. And He's going to show you that throughout all eternity. Thank you. Let's pray.